Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the power that's in it. And uh, we just pray that it would speak to us deeply tonight. That it would impact us. That it wouldn't just be words on a page, but that it would truly be the breath of God coming down to, to touch our hearts and our lives. And so we pray that you would be uh, glorified and honored as we're, as we're turning to it. Uh, we pray that, it, uh, that you would be exalted. So have your way with us, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So tonight, uh, we have our first pairing up of a couple books of the Bible. So we've been going through one a week. Uh, with the knowledge that there's 66 books in the Bible and there's 52 weeks in the year and it'd be nice if we could get 66 books done in 52 weeks. So tonight finds us at the book of First Kings but also the book of Second Kings. I'm going to go ahead and take off my shirt before I get too much hotter. Um, outer shirt, not the inner shirt. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah, no, I do know. Um, so anyways, the book of First Kings and the book of Second Kings are initially, as they were written, one book. But when the Bible is translated from Hebrew to Greek, uh, all the vowels in Greek run alongside the letters instead of Hebrew where they're underneath. And so it take up twice as so much space. They said, we can't fit this all in one scroll. Let's divide it into two books. And so Kings became First and Second Kings. And... Um, we don't get a lot of context in terms of who wrote it. A lot, um, there's no clear author. Some people would say Jeremiah wrote it because Second Kings ends at the exact same point that the book of Jeremiah ends. And so it's possible he could have written the narrative. He had time in prison to do it. But we really don't know for sure. Um, but what I want us to do is understand that you know, we're in the history section of the nation of Israel. We're, we're covering the history of the nation. Uh, you know, we talked about Genesis was the beginning. Exodus was them coming out of their bondage in Egypt. And Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were God establishing the law. And then, you know, Joshua onward has been an unbroken line of history. And what we have in Kings and then in Chronicles, or First and Second Chronicles, is we have dual narratives. We have two different authors who write pretty much the exact same account, um, Kind of like in the Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're telling the same story, which is the story of Christ, uh, but just from different perspectives to help us, as, to help us see different angles. Um, we get the same thing here. And so Kings and Chronicles, or First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, are going to cover pretty much the same era of history. And so what we're going to do because of that is um, we're going to emphasize different points each week, all right? So what we're not going to do necessarily tonight is go through, uh, okay, part one, part two, part three. And we're going to say, okay, here's some big points of emphasis in the book of Kings, and then next week we'll say, here's some big points of emphasis in the books of Chronicles. And as a result, we'll wind up with, uh, hopefully, a, a pretty coherent picture that still lets us keep moving through the Bible on pace, all right? So, um, so as we're looking at Kings, we're going to see a couple things. It is broken up into about three sections, and we're going to go over the sections and then ignore the sections. But um, So Kings is, is really three very straightforward sections. You have the reign of Solomon as king. Solomon is David's son. Uh, so Solomon reigns as king over the nation of Israel. That's the first 11 chapters. Chapter 12, you have the division of the nation of Israel, because Israel splits into two separate kingdoms. And then 1 Kings 13 all the way through 2 Kings 25 is the history of the two kingdoms. And so um, 
And at that point, it really gets to be a little bit of a confusing narrative uh, where basically it says, okay, so we've got two kingdoms now. We're going to talk about this kingdom, and now we're back to this kingdom, and we're back to this kingdom, and we're back to this kingdom. So it's a little bit of work to, to, work to go through it, but, um, but I think we can get through it. Um, but anyway, so as we're looking at it, though, I don't want us to necessarily just see the three parts. I want us to try and see a bigger picture of how does this fit in with the rest of the, rest of the scriptures? How does this apply to our lives? What's the overall picture of the book of First and Second Kings? So with that, though, um, the book does spend 11 chapters on the reign of Solomon as king. And so it's worthwhile for us to take some time and say, okay, who is Solomon? What's his story? Why does Scripture devote so much time to him? And so um, Solomon winds up, he's a, he's a pretty famous character in, in biblical history, even in world history. But his reign starts off, he's the son of David. He's the, uh, one of the younger sons of David. And his reign starts off with a little bit of kind of international drama, and he's got another brother who wants to be king, and so David, as he's getting ready to die, has to initiate, okay, no, wait, here's who I officially want to be king, and this son is not the king, and we're going to work and make sure that the priests are going this way, and, and there's a lot of, you know, wrangling going on. But Solomon becomes the king, and the scriptures don't tell us exactly how old he was, but... Um, there's one historian who would say he was 12 years old. There's another historian who says he was 15 years old. So we're not positive, but he was a pretty young guy. And we see Solomon's reign open up uh, really well. We really do. Um, you know, there's that level of drama going on, but in the midst of that, the Lord is doing something. The Lord is establishing his kingdom, right, his plan. And so we get to watch Solomon come into the kingdom. And in chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1, it says, As David's time to dr die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies. According to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth, with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David charges his son. He gives him a final benediction. He says, okay, here's Solomon. I am preparing to die. Here's what you need to do. Show yourself a man. Be strong. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. I'm getting ready to die, so here's what you do. You follow the Lord. It's, 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 it's a beautiful little benediction from David. And Solomon, so Solomon's reign starts out with that challenge, that, that challenge of, hey, God has promised great things to our family line, and we need to respond to that. We need to follow the Lord. We need to keep his commandments. And we see Solomon really does do that as he's beginning his reign. In chapter 3, Solomon, uh, he's offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and the Lord comes to him in a dream and says, what do you want? I'll give you what you want. And really, the Lord's handing him a blank check. And Solomon says, um, he says, well, here, we'll just, we'll just go for it. Um, in chapter 3, we'll start in verse 7. He says, now, O Lord my God, this is Solomon speaking back to the Lord. You've made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I'm but a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you've chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon says, God, 
I'm honestly just out of my league right now. I need wisdom. I need understanding. And the Lord is super blessed by this. When we see um, the Lord says, you know what? You could have asked for money. You could have asked for long life. You could have asked for a lot of things and you chose to ask for wisdom. You chose to ask for my input into your life. And so I'm gonna bless that. I'm gonna honor that. I'm gonna reward that. I'm gonna add on top of that. I'm gonna make you not just wise. I'm gonna make you knowledgeable because knowledge and wisdom are not the same things. I'm gonna make you rich. I'm gonna give you peace in your land as long as you're following me. And so, but Solomon, as we're looking at his life, it starts off at this point of humility. That Solomon's saying, I need, I need the Lord to steer the ship of my life or else I'm sunk. And the Lord honors that. The Lord is blessed by that. And, we, and that's a principle that's true all throughout scripture. The Lord loves to work on behalf of humble people. So Solomon receives wisdom from God. And we see, uh, you know, even as, as a, somewhere between 12 and 15 years old, um, his, his wisdom starts becoming legendary amongst the people. And there's an instance given where there's these two women and they're arguing over whose child is whose and there's no DNA test at the time, so it's really impossible to prove it. And Solomon comes up with a solution. Solomon judges it and everybody says that was brilliant. And, um, and so we see the wisdom of Solomon coming forth, the wisdom of God moving in Solomon's life. That's how Solomon begins his reign. And then the major chunk uh, in the book of Kings that covers Solomon's life covers really kind of his big crowning project, which was building the temple. And if you remember last week when we were talking in 2 Samuel, David said, hey, I want to build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord said, you know what? You're not the guy for the job. Your son's going to build the temple. But, you know, remember the Lord said, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build your lineage. I'm going to build your line. Your son can build me the temple, okay? So David, we'll, we see in, in Chronicles, um, David said, okay, I can't build the temple. Here's what I'll do. I'll get all the blueprints drawn up, I'll get all the plans drawn up, I'll get all the permits drawn up, I'll get all the money, I'll get all the materials, I'll get it all set there, and I'll tell Solomon, put it together. Build the temple. And Solomon builds the temple, and it's, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous. It's not super big, um, but it's probably one of the most elaborate buildings ever built. It's covered with gold. It's covered with the most expensive wood in the world. It's covered with stone that is all cut at the quarry, and it's not fit on site. It's all fit according to the plans. They bring it all together and it all locks together perfectly, right? I mean, that's, that's high-class engineering. That's expensive engineering. And, and it all comes together. And Solomon dedicates the temple to the Lord, and he gives this whole prayer about, hey, God, we're, you know, we built the temple, but we understand that the temple is not big enough to contain you. So we're building it really as a, as a symbol of wanting a relationship with you. Would you please have a relationship with us? And the Lord honors that. And the Lord comes back in chapter 9 in yeah, in verse one, it says, now when it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me. I've consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So Solomon has a, a really unique privilege. God appears to Solomon in a vision twice. 
That's a pretty unusual occurrence, right? The Lord does appear to people in visions. He still does that today. I absolutely believe that. But it's not, uh, it's not an everyday thing. And most of us would say, you know, if I got one vision from the Lord, that'd be pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, two visions would be pretty darn awesome. And the Lord comes again. He says, Solomon, I've heard your prayer. I've honored it. I'm going to bless it. I'm going to actually, the temple that you built for me, I'm actually going to park there. I'm going to put my presence in that temple. Right? I mean, think about that. You build this whole building. You build it out of stone and wood and gold. And God says, I'm going to dwell in there. The presence of God is going to descend into there. And that's, that's, you know, that's, that's pretty good stuff. If you build a building and God says, I'm parking here, that's a good deal. And God says, all right, so now, as for you, all right, we covered the temple, that's great. As for you, if you walk before me like David walked, if you walk in integrity and uprightness and do according to what I've commanded you, I'm gonna establish you. I'm gonna establish the throne of your kingdom. You won't have to fight for your rights. You won't have to defend yourself. You won't have to prove yourself. I will take care of it all for you. That's a, and that's, you know, we don't take that as a promise that applies to us in the sense of, oh, hey, if I follow the Lord, my life is great. But we do understand that when the Lord says, I will establish you, that's a biblical concept that we find throughout the scriptures. If we honor the Lord, the Lord will establish us. The Lord will set us. Uh, like it talks about in Matthew, if you hear the words of the Lord and do them, you're gonna be like a person who built a house on a foundation of rock, on a stone foundation, right? It doesn't say you will be like a person who had a $12.5 million mansion with an in-ground pool on a foundation of rock. It says you'll have a house, okay. So, you know, don't be greedy. But but you'll be on a foundation of stone. And the waves come and the storms come and you're secure. And so that's the Lord's promise to Solomon here. But Solomon becomes uh, the great tragedy of the Old Testament. And Solomon... Uh, Chapter 11, it starts in verse one, says now, or some versions say but. So after all Solomon did, after all the sacrifices and all the temple and all the building projects, but. But Solomon loved many foreign women, or depending on translation, some say many strange women, which is kind of a fun way to visualize it. Um, Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, he loved Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Solomon has this huge run this fantastic thing going, right? We're, it gives us the list of Solomon's accomplishments. Solomon was uh, probably one of the richest figures to ever live on the planet. Um, Solomon was one of the wisest men to ever live. 
one of the most knowledgeable men to ever live. But Solomon had this thing that he wasn't quite willing to deal with, right? And it wasn't even quite a thing by the time he died. It was actually a thousand women, which is significantly more than a thing. Um, But it's interesting, if you look in the book of Deuteronomy, God gave specific commands. He said, when you have a king, because the Lord knew there was going to come a king, he said, here's what I want the king to do. He needs to write out a copy of the Bible for himself that he reads from. He needs to make sure he doesn't multiply wives for himself. He needs to make sure he doesn't multiply gold for himself, and he needs to make sure he doesn't get horses from Egypt. There's another place where it says he also shouldn't have steps going up to his throne. Like, the king's throne should be on the same level as the people. You know what Solomon does? We don't know if Solomon wrote out his own copy of the Bible or not, but we know that Solomon did a couple things. He multiplied gold for himself. He multiplied wives for himself. It specifically says that he went to Egypt to buy horses. And it also specifically tells us elsewhere that Solomon had this awesome throne that had six steps going up to it, and on each side there was a golden lion. Because, you know, it's just like, why not, right? If you got that much gold, what else are you going to do with it? Let's make some steps so we can walk on the gold, because that's what you do with gold. You stand on it, right? Solomon has so much of all this stuff he doesn't know what to do with. It's like Solomon just systematically, piece at a time says, you know what, that part of the Word of God doesn't really apply. That part of the Word of God doesn't really apply. This part, it's really just a couple verses I'm carving out here. It's really, it's only a couple paragraphs. And all of a sudden, Solomon goes down as a tragedy, and all of a sudden we get this little, but now, Solomon clung to these women in love. Solomon's all of a sudden, he's not just straying. He's not just wandering. Solomon is building idols. He's building foreign temples. And the Lord, the Lord deals with this. The Lord comes to Solomon and he says, Solomon, you remember when I offered to establish you? Okay, well now the converse is going to happen. Now I'm actually going to take the kingdom away from you. And he says, now for the sake of your dad, I'm not gonna do it while you're alive. I'm gonna wait until you're dead, but here's what's gonna happen. There's 12 tribes, okay? Remember, there's the 12 sons of Jacob become the 12 tribes of Israel. God says, I'm gonna take away 10 of those tribes. You are, your descendants will not govern over them. And so we come to the division of Israel. And this is just one of those historical details that's just a little confusing, but we gotta do it because it's a historical detail. After Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes king. And under Rehoboam, the nation divides. And what happens is you have 12 tribes, and geographically, they're not in a straight line, but they kind of run in in a tall shape, okay? Just a little bit like the nation of Israel today. And the upper 10 tribes split off and become known as the nation of Israel. The lower two tribes are the nation of Judah and the nation of Benjamin. But Judah, at this point, has such a larger population that they just get referred to as the nation of Judah. So from this point on, in Scripture, you're going to see the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. Up to this point, it's been the nation of Israel. But now you've got this division. So it can be confusing while you're reading it, all right? If you're going through the Bible in a year, uh, and you're in, you know, we're in Joshua right now, and it's all about the nation of Israel, that's all 12 tribes, but it's going to split. And then that's where Kings gets a little bit challenging to read because it says, okay, so when Rehoboam's king in Judah, Jeroboam becomes king in Israel. And then when Jeroboam's king in Israel, Rehoboam dies and his son becomes king in Judah. And then when he's king in Judah, Jeroboam dies and his son becomes king in Israel. And the author's given us these parallel narratives uh, that are kind of hard to keep track with, but if you can remember that Israel's the northern kingdom and Judah is the southern kingdom, you can keep them straight. A little easier. You can also remember that 
the northern kingdom never has a godly king. So if you ever read about a good king in the nation, uh, it's the southern kingdom. If you read about a bad king, eh, your odds are 50-50. There's plenty of bad kings in the southern kingdom. But if you ever find a good king, you know we're talking about the nation of Judah. So, um, so that's where, that's, as we're looking at overview fashion, that's where it's going. The book of First and Second Chronicles, and this is, I, I want it to get us to this point, all right? The book of First and Second Chronicles only covers the kings of Judah. So it's truthfully a much more straightforward read. But First and Second Kings covers both. And so what I want us to do, because next week we'll be going through all the kings of Judah, we're not really going to look at any of the kings of Judah tonight, all right? We're going to, there's, oh, there's so much you can learn from them, but for the sake of kind of keeping a flow going, what we're going to do instead is look at, up in the northern kingdom, some of what the Lord is doing. Because even in a long, uninterrupted chain of evil kings, the Lord is still doing things. And so we see that, and we see it specifically in the book of First and Second Kings through two men, Elijah and Elisha. These guys are prophets of God, and they're used by God. They both have, in a sense, very similar callings, but in a similar sense, they also have very different callings. And so um, we're going to just park there. They both get a huge chunk of time. Uh, Elijah shows up in First Kings chapter 17. He doesn't leave until Second Kings chapter 2 which is a little under 20 chapters. Elisha shows up in 1 Kings chapter 19. He doesn't leave until 2 Kings chapter 13. So both these guys get huge portions of scripture devoted to their lives. But Elijah comes on the scene first. Elijah um, is this fiery, hairy prophet, all right? And it's, it's actually there in the text. Um, just a fact. Chapter 17 is where we get introduced to Elijah. And without any introduction... It says, now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, Ahab is one of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, as the Lord, the God of Israel is, before whom I stand, surely there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then he left. So Elijah walks up into the palace, evidently security was off duty, walks up to the king, says, I just want you to know you're an evil king and the Lord says there's gonna be no rain or dew for three and a half years until I say so. Goodbye, sir. Thank you very much. And then walks out the door. And for three and a half years, there's no rain and there's no dew. Period. Like, there's a drought for three and a half years because of the wickedness of this king, King Ahab. But Elijah is a prophet of God. He's delivering the word of God. God said, you go tell Ahab this, and Elijah said, got it, I'm on the job. Three and a half years later, Ahab meets up with, God says, okay, you know what? Three and a half years is a long time for drought, especially in an agricultural society. God says, it's time to bring things back around. I want you to go find Ahab. We're gonna deal with this. So Elijah goes and finds Ahab. Ahab says, you're the troublemaker, aren't you? Elijah says, no, no, you're the troublemaker, aren't you, right? Let's do this. Elijah says, we're gonna have a contest. We're going to see who's better, your God, who you're worshiping, or my God, right? Let's just have, let's just do this for fun. So you bring all of your false prophets, and I'll come to this, to this mountain, and we'll see what happens. We'll have a little test. So they all show up, and Elijah says, all right, here's the test. You guys get a dead cow, I get a dead cow. You build an altar, I build an altar. You put as much wood on it as you want, I'll put as much wood on it as I want. You guys ask your God to light the match. I'll ask my God to light the match. And whoever can light the fire is the right God. 
If your God can do it, go for it. Worship him. Just, you know, as long as he, can, as long as he has that kind of power, go for it. And so there's 450 priests of Baal, which is this false idol. And it says they, they build their altar, they get their cow, they put the wood under it, they start calling on, God, on their God to send fire, and nothing happens. And they call a little louder, and nothing happens. And it goes on for a while, and finally Elijah, with all the sensitivity of a well-refined guy, says, you know, he might be in the bathroom, call a little louder. He might be on a trip, because obviously your God is a little bit like locked into space, so uh, he might not be here today. And so they call until evening. And Elijah says, all right, if you guys are done, um, it's my turn, I think. So he finds an abandoned altar that, used to, that at one point in time had been built to the Lord. He patches it up, sticks the cow on it, digs a trench around it. He says, all right, do you guys have any water pots? They pour water on it. He says, do it again. And then he says, do it again. So they've now poured 12 buckets of water on top of the wood for this offering. And Elijah stands back and he says, okay, God, would you mind showing these people who you are? And it says that the fire came down from heaven and burned up the cow, burned up the wood, burned up the water, burned up the rocks. Elijah says, now guys, <clears throat> about your God, right? So it's, just, it's really one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament. Elijah is willing, he's got the faith in God to go toe-to-toe with the enemy and just fully trust in the Lord's ability. And then Elijah Again, with all of his refinement, executes 450 false prophets and then prays for rain and the rain comes. Now, interestingly, after this happens, and this is where I want us to, to get with Elijah's story, Elijah hits this like kind of midlife crisis moment where he has this huge work of, you know, he has this huge work of the power of God and the drought ends. I mean, it's, you know, it's this massive moving of God's power, okay? But the people don't turn back. He kills 450 priests, but there's no revival. And there's this, Elijah hits this like break point where Ahab's wife says, I'm gonna kill you, and Elijah just starts running. He just runs and runs and runs, and he actually winds up at Mount Sinai, which is also called Mount Horeb. He winds up at the mountain where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. That's a long way from where the Lord had called Elijah to minister. And so we get to this, really fascinating portion of scripture where Elijah, he, you know, he's declared the word of God. He's demonstrated the power of God, but God isn't living up to his expectations. God didn't bring revival through him. And so Elijah goes to this mountain and the Lord says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And um, chapter 19 of 1 Kings, verse 9 It says, then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. (sighs) So he, God, said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. Now bear in mind, this is the same mountain where the Lord wrote the Ten Commandments for Moses. This is the same mountain where Moses said, show me your glory, and God said, I'm gonna put you in a cave and cover you, and you can see the, the faintest whispers of my glory as I go past. And Moses glowed in a literal sense because he had absorbed so much glory from God. Okay, now we don't know, but it's entirely possible that Elijah is hiding in that same cave, and God says, I want you to come out on the mountain. All right, 
And it says, Behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountain and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So the Lord says, Elijah, you need to go out of this cave, and I'm going to show you something. Elijah goes out, and the Lord is passing by, and there's this huge wind. And the Lord says, that's not me. There's this huge earthquake, and that's not the Lord either. There's this huge fire, and that's not the Lord. And there's this still, small voice, right? Elijah understood the word of God. Elijah understood the power of God, but what the Lord wants Elijah to understand is the relationship with God. Lord says, hey, Elijah, I'm talking to you, right? The power is great. The power of God is, is a wonderful thing, but Lord says, all right, can you, you can see the power. You can exercise the power. That's great. Can you hear my voice? And so Elijah still, he says, so what are you doing here? This is not where I called you. I called you to the northern kingdom of Israel. You're all the way down here in Saudi Arabia. I said, well, I'm the, last, I'm the last believer left alive. They've killed everybody else, and I've tried. I've been zealous. The Lord says, here's what I want you to do. You go back. On the way, there's a guy who wants you to anoint king over Syria. There's a guy who wants you to anoint king over Israel, and you're going to pick your own replacement. But remember this. I've left 7,000 men in Israel whose knees have not bowed to bow. God says, Elijah, I want you to remember something. You are not actually alone. A, I'm with you, but B, I always have my remnant, right? And I think that's important for us to remember that there's always that remnant. And we can feel, you know, like we're the only Bible-teaching church in Indiana sometimes, right? But what's the truth? Truth is that the Lord is working all over, right? And the Lord wants to demonstrate his power. The Lord wants to do wonderful things, but what the Lord wants is people who know the Lord, who can hear and obey his voice. And that's, that's, you know, Elijah is the fiery prophet, and that's awesome. Elijah has some, some radical stuff happen through him, okay? And, um, but that's, but, you know, what's the Lord care about? The Lord cares about Elijah's heart. And so, don't get me wrong, the power of God's an awesome thing, but the relationship with God is that much better. And so that's, you know, so Elijah then, he goes and he, and he picks his replacement and we get to see Elijah and Elisha come side by side for a while. And, and you know, First and Second Kings has a little bit of a confusing narrative. There's a lot of people who have the same name at the same time or a really similar name. And we get introduced to this guy, Elisha. Now, Elisha is also a prophet of God. He's also called to deliver the word of God to the people. But it's a, it's a really a different ministry. And you know, in different commentators, as people look at, like, types and pictures of the Bible, there's different ways to look at the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And some people say, oh, Elijah's like John the Baptist, and Elisha is like Jesus Christ. And that's not a bad way to look at it. Some people say, oh, Elijah is like Jesus Christ, and Elisha is like the Holy Spirit coming to help us. And truthfully, that's not a bad way to look at it either, okay? There, there's, there's all kinds of lessons we can glean from the lives of these guys. But for the sake of, you know, just clarity, let's look at 
Okay, what's the Lord saying right here? Without going too far into types and pictures, and not that those are bad, but you always got to be able to come back and say, okay, what's, what's really going on here? So Elisha has a ministry, uh, really, of helping people. Um, Elijah really very much is calling people to repent. He's calling out sin. He's calling people to serve the Lord. Elisha is the guy who comes along and helps people serve the Lord. Helps people with some you know, practical day-to-day needs. Helps people with just, hey, you know, can, can we you know, work this out? And so it's a different ministry, but it really is the same ministry, which is pointing people to the Lord. And we see this all throughout the church, all throughout Christian history, all throughout the scriptures. The Lord is calling all of us to the same ministry, which is to know God personally and to then make him known to other people around us. But in that, he's calling each of us to very radically different ministries, and that's okay, right? There are going to be people who have more of an Elijah bent. There are gonna be people who have more of an Elisha bent, who want to just help people. There's gonna be people who wanna just call out the truth of God and the power of the word of God. And both of those are important. And so it's, it's critical for us to understand that there are differences and there are big differences and there are little differences. And in the body of Christ, we're all gonna be different. We are not all gonna be the same. And that's okay. In fact, that's the way the Lord designed it. So as long as somebody can declare that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him, you can have a lot of messed up theology and still fall under that umbrella, right? So don't be too quick to, to chop somebody out of the fellowship just because you're an Elisha and they're an Elijah. But Elisha does have a very distinct role, and he's got a, just a very cool role uh, in the kingdom of God. He's got this like helper healer ministry, and he starts out his ministry begins um, as a follower of Elijah. He's in Elijah's shadow. And Elijah, as he's getting ready to leave this earth, says, what do you want? Like as, as kind of a, you know, if I could impart something to you, what would it be? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit. I want to have twice as much of the Lord working in my life as you have working in your life right now. And Elijah says, that is a hard thing, right? Having a life that's devoted and dedicated to serving the Lord is not an easy thing. But Elijah says, you know what? If, if you see me when I go, it'll happen. And Elijah, uh, if you're familiar with it, Elijah doesn't die right here. He, a fiery chariot comes down, takes him up to heaven, and when we get to Revelation, uh, we'll discuss it, but most people would say that Elijah's gonna come back to earth during the period of the Great Tribulation and be a, a preacher of righteousness again. He's gonna declare the word of God once more on earth. Uh, And then he'll die. He'll get killed then. But Elisha starts out with this hunger for, I want to to have a deeper relationship with the Lord. Right? Elijah is this guy who's got this incredible relationship with the Lord. And Elisha says, I want twice as much. I want as much of God as I can possibly handle without bursting. All right? That's how his ministry starts. And so he, and he receives it. He receives a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And what does he do with it? Well, in chapter 20, he saves an army from dying of dehydration, in, uh, which is, you know, kind of helpful. Um, and then his ministry kicks over really into 2 Kings. And so in 2 Kings um, chapter, well, chapter 4, um, there's, a, there's a widow who has, her husband had debts, 
And in that day and age, if you can't pay your debts, we take your kids, we sell them as slaves, we pay the debts. The woman says, I'd like for that to happen. And Elijah, Elisha helps her solve her problem. Elisha, there's another case where there's a group of guys who are going out to build a house. One of them loses the axe that he had borrowed, which is a big deal. It was an expensive axe because uh, it was iron at a time when iron wasn't available in most of the world. And Elisha says, where'd you drop it? If it fell in a creek, Elisha throws a stick in the water and the iron axe head floats. All right, so Elisha just, he helps these guys out. These guys make a, a batch of soup. Somebody puts something nasty in it. They say, there's death in that pot. And Elisha says, well, bring me a little bit of flour. Sprinkle some flour in. Says, all right, now you can eat it. So he works all these really just kind of weird but cool miracles. But what's interesting about Elisha's ministry is that I was trying to look through it today, and I think every single one, um, but just to be safe, I'll say virtually every single one, of Elisha's miracles require an act of obedience on the person receiving the miracle. Um, you know, the person, the iron axe head floats to the water, Elisha tells the guy, reach out and pick it up. The widow needs to make some money. Elisha says, what do you have? She says, I have one bottle of oil. He says, you get every jar you can find and you start pouring oil out of that little bottle and the oil will keep multiplying. So the extent of blessing that she receives is dependent upon how many oil bottles she collected, right? She receives as much blessing as she participated in obedience. And we see, and you know, this is just, it's, this happens over and over again in the scriptures. And Elisha is just one of these great examples where the Lord will, you will, you will reap in proportion to obedience, right? We reap what we sow. But oftentimes when the Lord calls us to something, the Lord does not give us the full plan. The Lord says, hey, here's a step. Take that step. And then he says, okay, here's the next step. Why don't you take that step? And then he says, here's the next step. Why don't you take that step? And it's a good way, thing that he does it that way because if he didn't, he'd say, here's three steps. And we'd say, I don't like that third step. Thank you very much. We, we are just way too stupid, really, to handle that kind of information. And so the Lord gives us incremental doses. But if we refuse to obey the first step, he almost never shows us the second step. So if you want to discern the will of God, if you want to know the purpose and the will of God for your life, the best way to do it is to ask the Lord for one way you can walk in obedience and then obey that step. And then ask him, okay, Lord, what's one more thing I could do that would be in obedience to you? And then you walk in that step, and it might be something stupidly insignificant. But that's not the point. The point is, it's walking in obedience to the Lord. And Elisha has a ministry of helping people walk in obedience to the Lord. And so, as we're looking at it, you know, so as we look at really these three lives, Solomon, Elijah, and Elisha, Solomon is the tragedy of a guy who had all kinds of cool experiences and all kinds of stuff and was okay parceling out bits and pieces of the word of God. Elijah is this amazing man of God who still has to come to grips with the fact that he needs to know the Lord on a personal level. Elisha is this guy who has a ministry of helping people walk in obedience. And that's, you know, those two guys in particular are just, that's the kind of life you want to lead right? I want to be a person who can declare the word of God with the boldness of Elijah. I also want to be a person who can help somebody else come to a knowledge of the Lord, who can help somebody else walk in obedience. And so, you know, we all have personality bents and, and different, you know, resources and all that kind of stuff, but we're only going to 
be able to step into that fully if we understand really the principles from both of those guys' lives, which is that A, we have to know the Lord personally, and B, we have to walk in that obedience. And that's really, as we look at the book of First and Second Kings, it's a story of obedience and disobedience. One after the other, we see these kings march by, and we're going to see, and you see different prophets and individuals march by, and it's either, hey, this person was willing to obey the Lord and receive blessings, or hey, this person really wasn't. And that's, that's the summary of kings, is, is it's the story of people and their interactions with the Lord. And we get to watch the good, the bad, and the very bad. And they're all there for us as examples. And so that's kings uh, as a whole. It just real fast, if we're looking at um, how does Jesus Christ fit into the book of Kings? Because we are trying to look at... Um, you know, trying to see how does the scripture tie itself together? How is the word of God all pointing to the same singular focus, which is Jesus Christ? And there's just a couple passages, uh, just two, if you're worried. Um, in First Kings chapter 15, verse 3, it's describing uh, a king named Abijam. And it says, He walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And then, if you would, go over to Second Kings chapter 8, and it's a similar passage in verse 18. Um... describing a different king, it says, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Again, all the kings of Israel were bad. So if you walked like a king of Israel, that was bad. Um, Just as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab became his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. However, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he had promised to give a lamp to him through his sons always. If you remember last week, David wanted to build a temple. The Lord said, that's great, but you can't build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. I, and we, you know, we talked about that was partially fulfilled in Solomon, but that was really fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The house of David still stands. A descendant of David is still on the throne. Well, we see with both of those examples there, an evil person. And it says the Lord didn't destroy him for the sake of David, right? We see, you're gonna see in Kings and in Chronicles, we're gonna see a lot of wickedness, a lot of just, of just dark evil. But the Lord, in his grace, is letting these guys live long enough to have a son so that the line of David can carry on because the Lord will fulfill his word, right? Both of these kings, um, the implication in this passage is, you know, they deserved to die. They deserved the judgment of God. But, for the sake of his promise, for the sake of the word of God, the Lord let them endure, right? So it's, it's all building in this narrative, this single coherent line that's pointing to Jesus Christ. The Lord is letting these lines stand so that Jesus Christ can come and save the world. So that's where we're gonna see Jesus. We'll see it um, more next week again, just because we'll be going through the kings of Judah. And so it's the kings of Judah are a genealogical line that every single one of them is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. And so we get to see bits and pieces of it. But 
that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the whole narrative tie together. You know, everything from the focus on Jesus Christ to the principles of, you know, living a godly life, living a victorious life that we're gonna see all through the New Testament. You know, all the letters of Paul, all the letters of James and Peter and all these guys. It's all tying together to focus on a life of knowing God, a life of knowing Jesus Christ and walking in a relationship with him. That's First and Second Kings. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's powerful, that, it's, that it is a, a coherent narrative, that it's not just the writings of men or the wisdom literature of, of ancient people, but it's actually the word of God. It's the, it's the breath of God. We thank you that you honor your word above your name. And we pray that, uh, that your word would have an impact in our lives, that we would give it that same honor, that we would uh, respect it, that we would handle it like it has life in it like it can give us life. We, can, we would handle your word like there's power in it. God, I pray that we would not live shallow lives of just passing over what we don't like and passing through the, the hard parts, but that we would really understand uh, the depth of relationship that we can have with you through your Holy Spirit, but through your word. And I pray that you would just do that work in each of our hearts, God. Let us not lose sight of that. So have your way with us. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.